in the Talmud, which is the writings of the ancient Jewish rabbis, it may surprise you to know, then again it may not, that Jesus is officially and actually accused of being a sorcerer. It says that in the Talmud. A man who the Talmud, and written by the rabbis, a man who they said learned how to use magic while he was in Egypt, then he came to Israel, used these magical powers to cast out demons and do miracles, claimed to be the Messiah, but he is a fraud. He is a sorcerer. He is satanic. Folks, that's exactly what the Pharisees said. The rabbis concluded that they, the Pharisees were right. That he was just one of the devil's agents who cast out demons with satanic supernatural powers. So, in essence, what Matthew is doing is he's giving us an apologetic. He's giving us a way to defend the faith and also to solidify our own faith in Christ. He's giving us solid evidence that Jesus is exactly who he said he was. The Messiah, the King, which is exactly what Matthew's theme is in his whole book. And he does this by pressing home the primary truth that Christ's miracles were not done by Satan's power but by the power of God. In Matthew chapter 12, a demon-possessed man was brought to Jesus, and Jesus cast out the demon. The people who were watching were amazed, according to what Matthew wrote. But the Pharisees, not wanting Jesus to have any credit, said that he cast out demons by the power of Satan. Jesus told them their accusation was absolutely illogical, absurd, and preposterous. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 25, Jesus said, Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and any city or house divided against itself will not stand. It seems the Pharisees, instead of directly saying Jesus was satanic, probably moved through the crowd and spoke it in very low words and low tones to the people around them. However, Jesus knew what they were thinking, and knowing their thoughts, he began to answer their charge by drawing an analogy from the world of physical warfare. We're going to find out more of how Jesus refuted the Pharisees on today's verse-by-verse broadcast featuring the teaching of the pastor of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida, Steve Kreloff. In the Talmud, which is the writings of the ancient Jewish rabbis, it may surprise you to know, then again it may not, that Jesus is officially and actually accused of being a sorcerer. It says that in the Talmud. A man who the Talmud, and written by the rabbis, A man who they said learned how to use magic while he was in Egypt. Then he came to Israel, used these magical powers to cast out demons and do miracles, claimed to be the Messiah, but he is a fraud. He is a sorcerer. He is satanic. Folks, that's exactly what the Pharisees said. The rabbis concluded that the Pharisees were right. That he was just one of the devil's agents who cast out demons with satanic supernatural powers. So, in essence, what Matthew is doing is he's giving us an apologetic. He's giving us a way to defend the faith and also to solidify our own faith in Christ. He's giving us solid evidence that Jesus is exactly who he said he was. The Messiah, the King, which is exactly what Matthew's theme is in his whole book. And he does this by pressing home the primary truth that Christ's miracles were not done by Satan's power but by the power of God. 
So that's the background of this passage. We're, we're going to be able this morning, Lord willing, to look at two of these arguments Jesus gave. And we want to unwrap this passage, an amazing passage, giving you help in solidifying your faith and giving you a little equipment to be able to witness to skeptics who say they reject Christ. So the first argument Jesus gave to prove that the Pharisees' accusation against him was false is this. He told them their accusation was absolutely illogical. Meaning it makes no sense, it's absurd, it's, it's unreasonable, it's preposterous. It doesn't make any sense. Notice what he said in verse 25. And knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and any city or house divided against itself will not stand. Now Matthew tells us that even though the Pharisees didn't directly say to Jesus that you're satanic, they didn't say that to him, he knew exactly what they were thinking. And what they were saying, even though they probably just moved amongst the crowd and spoke in very low words and low tones to the people around them, Jesus knew what they were thinking. And knowing their thoughts, he began to answer their charge by drawing an analogy from the world of physical warfare. He told them something that is self-evident. It's a commonly held, understood truth of life. He reminds them about something that they just all knew to be true. That is, in the physical world of warfare, no kingdom, no city, no household that fights against itself will continue to stand firm. In other words, in-house fighting breaks down and destroys an organization. No group that fights against itself continues to be strong and powerful. This is just common sense. Nobody would deny this. It's just a generally held truism. It's self-evident, understood by all. Civil war or internal strife always results in tearing a nation or a people down. Nobody could debate that. Everybody understands that. And so, having a commonly understood truth, Jesus now took this well-understood principle of life and he just applied it to the spirit world of Satan's domain by asking a very pointed and specific question. In verse 26, he said this, If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? What the Lord is saying is this, since it's common knowledge that kingdoms that fight against themselves become ruined kingdoms, then why would Satan fight against himself by using me to cast his demons out of people? What a great truth. What a great question. In other words, he's saying, your charge against me makes no sense. It is illogical. It is ridiculous because Satan is king over his evil kingdom would never use me or anyone else to throw his own soldiers out of his kingdom. Out of his kingdom, that's preposterous. You see, what, what Jesus is telling the Pharisees is that their charge against him absolutely defies logic and clear thinking. Because logic demands that the devil would never fight against himself. Remember this, Satan is exceedingly wicked, but he's not stupid. He's not stupid. He's wicked. He's not stupid. He's more brilliant than any one of us. And he knows what he's doing. As one Bible teacher so aptly put it, Satan's demons may on occasion act inconsistently and in conflict with him and each other, just on occasion. But despite the disorder of his kingdom, his creature limits, his false exorcisms and demon confusion, Satan does not cast out Satan and he is not divided against himself. There is no harmony, trust or loyalty in his kingdom, but he tolerates no disobedience or division. It was therefore preposterous to accuse Jesus of casting out demons by the power of the ruler of the demons. End of quote. 
That's exactly right. See, the devil would never cast out a demon and free a man who had been under his control because that would be destructive to his kingdom. And what, what Satan is doing is trying to, he's trying to build his empire and expand it, not diminish it. If a man is demon-possessed, Satan already has that man. Why would he use someone to cast out that demon? It doesn't make any sense. Now, this argument given by the Lord is a brilliant one, and it's an important one. And it's one that you and I can use in witnessing, in evangelizing, unbelievers who think that Jesus was a fraud, people who know enough about the Bible to be dangerous, and they'll tell you why Jesus is a fraud. Based on the Lord's approach to the Pharisees, you can ask them this compelling question and show them that their arguments have not been well thought out. You can say something like this. If Jesus wasn't from God, then how did he do all of those miracles? Which scores of people observed him doing. He didn't, he didn't do it in hiding. How did he do it? If his power wasn't from God, then it must have come from Satan. But it defies logic to think that Satan would attack and destroy his own kingdom by using one of his agents to expel demons. So how do you explain this? See, the reason this is a good question is you get people to think through the issues. Usually people who have rejections like this are rather smug in their arguments and and rather arrogant, trying to impress you that they are so scholarly and so intelligent they've thought through the issues and this is what they've concluded with, uh, come to a conclusion about. But they haven't thought it through. It's illogical. It doesn't make any sense. A question like this posed to an unbeliever forces them to think through the weakness of their unbelief to see how absurd it is. So the first argument Jesus gave to prove that the Pharisees' accusation was false is this. He told them your accusation is illogical. But he moved on to a second argument to prove the Pharisees' accusation was false. Not only was their accusation illogical, but their accusation was inconsistent with their own beliefs. Notice verse 27. He said, If by Beelzebul, if I by Beelzebul cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? For this reason, they'll be your judges. This is a fascinating argument. It's absolutely a brilliant argument used by the Lord in answering this charge. He reminds the Pharisees that some of their own former students, whom he calls your sons, he doesn't mean your physical sons, he means your disciples, your your learners, your followers, some of them were actually engaged in a ministry of exorcism, casting out of demons. That's precisely what Jesus meant when he said, by whom do your sons cast them out? It's a well-known fact of history that exorcism was a thriving business in the first century. Not only did many pagans engage in this kind of work, but there were actually, and it may surprise you to know, there were actually many Jewish men involved in the work of exorcism. In fact, Josephus, the first century Jewish historian who worked for the Romans, wrote in his writings that these Jewish exorcists used strange incantations, cultic charms, and their rites of of exorcism. In fact, I'd like you to see one of these exorcists, actually a few of them, in Acts chapter 19. Luke, in Acts 19, tells us about an incident in which some Jewish exorcists tried to cast out a demon by using a new magic formula. Some special words of mentioning the name of Jesus and the name of the Apostle Paul, but they failed miserably. 
We'll break in in Acts 19 at verse 11. God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that handkerchiefs or aprons were even carried from his body to the sick and the diseases left them and the evil spirits went out. So this is a marvelous, remarkable type of miracle that that took place or miracles that that day. But notice verse 13 says, but also some of the Jewish exorcists, it means these men saw this going on, who went from place to place, attempted to name over those who had the evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. And then Luke tells us these were seven sons of one Sceva. So we have a family of seven brothers of a man named Sceva who was a Jewish chief priest. They were doing this. But there's a problem we read about in verse 15. And the evil spirit answered and said to them, I recognize Jesus and I know about Paul, but who are you? Now, you don't want to hear that from a demon. That's the last thing you want to hear. And... Verse 16 says, And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them and subdued all of them. This is one man. Took on seven brothers and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. What a a failed, miserable attempt to cast out demons. But that's precisely the kind of people that Jesus was talking about about the sons of the Pharisees. And by the way, they would have to be Pharisees and not belonging to the sect known as the Sadducees because the Sadducees did not believe in spirit beings. So they had to be just from the the Pharisees. Now, some of you may wonder, well, the sons of the Pharisees, do they really carry on a legitimate ministry of casting out demons? I don't think so. Uh, I think they were all fakes. But that's not the point that the Lord is making. Actually, in this passage, Jesus wasn't defending or attacking the validity of these Jewish exorcists. But what he was doing is pointing out how inconsistent the Pharisees were in accusing him of casting out demons by the power of Satan. You see, what Jesus, in essence, is saying to the Pharisees is this. Since you believe that some of your disciples exercise demons by the power of God, then isn't it inconsistent of you to think that I don't? Did you catch that? Since you believe, now whether it was true or not, they certainly believed this, that your disciples cast out demons by the power of God, then isn't it inconsistent of you to think that I don't? And the answer is, of course it was inconsistent. It was absolutely inconsistent of them to believe that their disciples were casting out demons by divine power, but Jesus, who did the same thing, did it by Satan's power. Then why did they have this inconsistent view? Why believe that their disciples were legitimate, but not Jesus? Simply because these Pharisees were prejudiced. They hated Christ. They were biased against him. You see, their disciples were part of their religious establishment. They supported the, the Pharisees. They, they reaffirmed these men as pious, godly men. And Jesus was outside of the religious establishment. He wasn't like their former students. Jesus not only didn't affirm the Pharisees, he denounced them and exposed them as being phony religious hypocrites. And they couldn't stand it. That's why they turned on him. Because he told them exactly what they were like. Now, folks, understand why the Jewish religious leaders of Christ's day despised and rejected him. Not only were they threatened by him, 
but they didn't like what he had to say about them. That's why people today are in hardened unbelief. The same thing. They continue to hate and reject him. It has absolutely, and know this, don't be intimidated by so-called scholarly unbelief. It has nothing to do with the lack of evidence for believing that Jesus is exactly who he claimed to be. The Pharisees had all the evidence they needed. They knew all the scriptures, yet they continued to reject him. Why? The real issue back then, and the real issue today, is that those who intentionally reject Christ, even though intellectually they know that he's the truth, they reject all the evidence is because they are prejudiced against him. They absolutely hate him. And the reason they hate him so much and are so prejudiced against him is because they love their sin and they cannot stand the light of his righteousness because it exposes the sin of their darkness. I want you to see this for yourself. John chapter 3, I've alluded to this, but let me have Jesus tell you why men and women continue to reject him. It's very simple. This explains why you witness to people who otherwise are so intelligent. They are, they are brilliant, but you cannot get through to them the reasonableness of the Christian faith. And they are illogical and inconsistent in their rejection. It's all because of this. John chapter 3, beginning at verse 19. Jesus said, this is the judgment that the light, he is the light, has come into the world. And men loved the darkness rather than the light. Why did they love the darkness? Why did they want to stay in the darkness? Why did they despise him? Jesus said, for their deeds were evil. Their deeds were evil. For everyone, he said, who does evil hates the light. Everyone who continues in evil hates him. Why? Does not come to him, does not come to the light. Here's the reason for fear that his deeds will be exposed. People continue hating Christ and rejecting him because they don't want to repent. They love their sin and Christ deals with the real issues of the heart. Not the external superficial stuff. How we look on the outside. Christ gets to the heart and deals with our lust and deals with our hatred and deals with our lack of forgiveness and exposes us for being exactly what we are, wicked, rebellious sinners who hate God, hate his word and want to do our own thing. And people justify their unbelief by saying, no, I don't, I don't believe in Jesus because I don't think this is right and I don't think that. The real issue is they're not right. They're not right. It's not him. So never be intimidated by those who, who reject Christ in the name of scholarship. They are inconsistent and illogical in their unbelief because of their prejudice, not because there isn't valid evidence. And Jesus actually at the end of verse 27 just proves how inconsistent and biased these Pharisees really were. Notice the last phrase of verse 27. He says, for this reason, this inconsistency, they will be your judges. In other words, the Lord is saying, let your disciples be the ones to judge whether you're right or, or wrong about me. If your disciples say that they cast out demons by Satan's power, then they only condemn themselves and you who support them. Because why would you support them if they're doing it demonically? On the other hand, he's saying, if they say that they cast out demons by God's power, then your accusation against me has no weight because that's exactly what I do. They will be your judges. You see the brilliance here? The Lord has absolutely trapped them to seeing their inconsistency. His point being in all this that their charge against him of casting out demons by Satan was inconsistent with their own belief system and was based not on the facts, 
but on bias, hatred, and prejudice, rather than objective evidence. Now, folks, understand the big picture that's being taught here. Those who are determined to reject Jesus will come up with all kinds of justifications for their unbelief. But their reasons will always be illogical and be inconsistent. Jesus is exactly who he said he is, God the Messiah and King. And his miracles simply prove the authenticity of who he is. question is, is he your king? Is he your Lord? Is he your Savior? Have you ever turned from your rebellion and trusted Christ as Savior and Lord? I don't mean have you ever prayed a prayer with mom and dad? Have you ever walked an aisle? I mean, have you ever consciously turned from your sin? Say, Lord, I'm living a way that I should not live. I trust that that you died on the cross for me and I want to follow you with all of my heart. I want you to be my king and my Lord. When you do that, the Bible says you will be completely forgiven. But do it before it's too late. And that's the point of this passage because if you are one who is convinced of the evidence, you know enough about the Bible to know it's true about Christ and yet you keep putting it off and putting it off and putting it off, there is a hardness that can take place in your heart that's irreversible. You can become so enlightened to the truth that there's nothing more that God can do. You've seen it all. You are the one who is in danger of committing the unforgivable sin, which we will look at more closely, Lord willing, next week. And if you are a believer and are worried about having committed this unforgivable sin, you don't need to be. You don't need to be. I assure you, on the authority of the word of God, that no one who is concerned about that sin has committed it. You would never be concerned about it if you had committed it. We're going to see next week in our study what that's all about. Let's bow for prayer. Lord, thank you for giving us a glimpse into this very unique portion of Scripture. Lord, it's almost like we were there hearing the the outraged cries of the Pharisees, self-righteous men, hypocrites, screaming against the precious Son of God. Lord, may we not be in that crowd. May we not even be in the crowd of the undecided. I pray for those who might be in that crowd of undecided people even today. I pray that you will open their hearts, Lord, to see not only is the gospel true, but give them grace to repent of their sin. To see that Their unbelief is illogical and it's inconsistent. May they be willing only by your your power to turn from their sin and to turn to Christ to save them. I pray, Lord, for those who are struggling, even today, with thinking that they may have committed this unpardonable sin. I pray that even the little we've spoken about today concerning that will give them rest and assurance for you cannot contradict your own word. I pray that... They will be assured of full salvation and not troubled by this. And Lord, I pray that you will help us who witness, as we should, and evangelize to be aware of the real issues of the day. Be aware of the wickedness of men and women's hearts and never be weakened in our own belief in Christ. Lord, may we stand up to unbelief with the very strength and yet graciousness of Jesus. So Lord, we pray you'll take these words, use it, use them greatly in our lives, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our first three broadcasts in this new verse-by-verse series have been very interesting. But let's understand the big picture that's being taught in Matthew chapter 12. 
those who are determined to reject Jesus will come up with all kinds of justifications for their unbelief, but their reasons will always be illogical and inconsistent. Jesus is exactly who He said He is, God, the Messiah, and King. And His miracles simply prove the authenticity of who He is. The real question is this, is He your King, your Lord, your Savior? Have you ever turned from your rebellion and trusted Christ as Savior and Lord? That question is not just for those of us who are listening to the program today. It is for our family, our friends, our neighbors. The stakes are serious. It is the human soul. Either people are in Christ or they are not, as we saw highlighted in Matthew chapter 12. We have more to learn from Matthew chapter 12, so please join us for the next verse-by-verse broadcast. Verse by verse broadcast.